All right. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redeemer. Um, my name is Kevin Tapscott. I'm one of the pastors here, and just really glad you decided to join us here this morning. Um, so today, as Melody just said and just read, we are in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, and so if you're new or anything, um, we have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians in a sermon series we've entitled A Hot Mess, uh, just talking about how the Corinthian church was just a hot mess with a lot of issues, a lot of things going on, things that the Apostle Paul wanted to write and address specifically. Um, and so today uh, we're going to finish out this book in this sermon series with chapter 16. Next week, we are going to start a new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. Um, so next week, we're going to kind of give an overview of the book of Luke. The four weeks after that, we're going to be in Advent. So we're going to be in Luke 1 and 2. These are kind of the birth narrative stories of Jesus. And so we'll be in Luke 1 and 2 for Advent. And then after that, we will just pick back up with chapter 3 and continue on through um, the Gospel of Luke. And that's where we're headed next. Uh, but today, we are in 1 Corinthians 16. Um, and so few of you may know this, few of you may have even been around to remember this, uh, but the first sermon I ever preached at Redeemer was in May 2017, and it was actually on 1 Corinthians 15, on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So in that sermon, my first sermon here, I tried to follow the argument of Paul and just to show everyone that we can have, can have confidence in the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and that because he rose from the dead, we have hope now and we have hope for eternal life. We can trust that our faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, is well-founded and is not in vain. And I chose 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about the reality of the uh, resurrection, at least in part because in seminary I had the privilege of uh, studying and learning more about apologetics. And so in that sermon I wanted to use what I had learned um, to encourage and to build up the faith of our church. Uh, if, if you're unfamiliar with apologetics, it's a discipline that seeks to defend Christianity, the Christian worldview, as true, rational, and compelling. Um, ultimately, it means that being a Christian does not mean that we uh, have believed in Jesus in spite of evidence, as if we're just taking a blind leap in the dark, but rather that there's good evidence, there's good justification to believe in Christianity from fields like philosophy, science, history, archaeology, so many different things. Uh, and for me, after learning about these things in seminary, obviously I'm convinced Christianity is true, that Jesus did rise again from the dead. Which, of course, is very good news because our faith hinges on whether or not the resurrection actually happened. Um, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, as I talked about in my first sermon here at Redeemer, uh, as Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If he didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is futile. We are still in our sins, Paul says. We don't have the hope of eternity. We really have just this life. That's all there is. And so if that's true, then we should live it up. We should do whatever we want. But since it is true that Jesus did rise from the dead, then that changes everything. It means that we can be confident in our faith in Jesus and that we will one day be raised from the dead. We will receive resurrection bodies, and we will be with our Lord Jesus for all eternity. If Jesus rose from the dead, then our daily lives should reflect that. For as 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Because ultimately, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, as, as Tyler talked about in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, then there is no resurrection of the dead. We don't have this hope of eternity, and so we have 
just this life. And if that's the case, then we fear death because there's nothing after that. It's just this life, then we die, and that is it. And so if that's the case, we need to make the most of our lives on earth now and just do what we want. But again, because Jesus rose from the dead, and as we learned last week, death is swallowed up in victory, we know that Jesus won this victory for us over death by rising from the dead himself. And so Jesus' victory from the dead frees us from the consequences of death and the fear of death, and ultimately frees us from living for ourselves. And so now we are free to live for Jesus, who died for us and was raised back to life for us. Therefore, as those who have placed faith in Jesus and received eternal life through faith in his death and resurrection, we should live every single day in light of the resurrection. Our daily lives should reflect the reality that we believe the resurrection is true. So that was 1 Corinthians 15. That brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And if you're like me, we didn't read all of chapter 16, but if you've read it, if you're like me, reading chapters like this in the New Testament can be challenging. It can honestly feel kind of boring and as if it doesn't really apply to our lives today. I mean, Paul, he's talking about practical aspects about collecting money for people who are in poor back in the first century, not even today. Talking about Paul's individual travel plans, talking about greetings from people that we don't know and cannot ever meet. So what ultimately can we learn from those things? But I think this morning we'll actually see that even in these practical matters, Paul, he's trying to reinforce the same principles of love and unity that he's been talking about in the book of 1 Corinthians the entire time. But we're also going to see by Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church, but also just his example, what it looks like to live in light of the resurrection. So getting into our passage, the first four verses, we're going to see that the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, compels us to support others in need. Verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So these verses, this is the last item that the Corinthians had probably asked Paul about to respond to. And he leaves it here at the end of his letter, probably because his response ties into his future travel plans, which we're going to get to next. But also because, as I was saying, it's a more tangible manifestation of the main principles of love and unity that Paul has been talking about this entire time. So Paul, he's helping to lead organizing this collection of funds, collection of a financial gift for poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, so we know from history that there was a famine in Jerusalem in the surrounding area in the late 40s AD. So it's possible that these poor Christians in Jerusalem were still struggling after that famine. But regardless, the reality is, is they are poor and they are in financial need. And so Paul, he's speaking to churches from all over the ancient Mediterranean to organize a collection of funds and to deliver this gift to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And so this financial gift is for, out of love for these poor brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. And ultimately it's cultivating unity in the capital C church, the global church, as churches that are made up predominantly of Gentile Christians are going to give to support poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so this is practically reinforcing for believers that the church is a diverse global family, yet they are unified in Christ. And Paul, he gives 
very practical advice in everyone bringing something to donate to these Christians on the first day of the week. And so this weekly collection on the first day of the week was probably during the time that they would gather as a church to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so this act of giving to support these poor brothers and sisters was an act of worship itself. But we also see that Paul says that everyone is to give as he may prosper. Ultimately, that means in accordance with their income. There's not a set standard of an amount or a percentage or anything like that, but each person is to give prayerfully so, but generously, cheerfully, and sacrificially. And if you've been around Redeemer for any length of time, you know that this is language that we use to talk about financial giving, generous, cheerful, sacrificial. But we also use that language to talk about other things, about our time, our gifts, our resources, anything that we have in this life to be generous, cheerful, and sacrificial with, with those things for the sake and the good of others. And we use that language because that language comes, at least in part, from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And in those chapters, Paul is giving his longest treatment on the topic of financial stewardship in the New Testament. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9-7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And in that, in 2 Corinthians, Paul, he's talking about actually the same topic of a collecting a financial gift for these poor Christians in Jerusalem. Because at that point, when he's writing 2 Corinthians, it seems that they hadn't yet collected that financial gift. They haven't yet delivered it to these Christians in Jerusalem. And so the Corinthian Christians in 2 Corinthians, it seems as if they're kind of going back. They're reneging on their initial, original financial commitment to these poor Jewish Christians. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians 8 9, is taking some time to say, hey, no, you should uphold your commitment. It is a good and wise and loving thing to do to support these brothers and sisters. And so in that context, he's giving us a good presentation of what biblical stewardship looks like ultimately for all of us, even today. And so something that we're probably all familiar with is a tithe. The tithe is giving 10% of your income to the church. And this is a good thing. It's not a bad goal to shoot for in terms of financially giving to support the local church where you are a member. But that tithe ultimately comes more from the Old Testament commandments on giving. And actually, the Old Testament included three different offerings that together equaled 23 and one-third percent, not 10% of someone's income. But the New Testament standard, it seems, is giving generously, cheerfully, and sacrificially. And ultimately, that's going to look different for every single person. If someone is a millionaire, then giving 10%, even 20%, may not require that much sacrifice for them. But that's obviously not the same for someone who might be living closer to the poverty line. For that person, giving 10% might actually be unwise stewardship of their resources and their finances. But ultimately, Paul is saying that the standard is that we should give. He says each of you is to put something aside and store it up. And that the standard, according to the New Testament, is generous, cheerful, and sacrificial giving to the church and to others in need. But sometimes, as in the case of these Christians in Jerusalem, we are the ones in need. And we need to receive from the financial gift and blessing of others. And that is okay, too. But ultimately, giving to support the church, the poor, and those in need is a grace of God to us. It is his grace to us that even causes us to want to give to the, in the first place, but also a grace of God to us to be able to give to others. And ultimately, we see that Jesus himself is the example and motivation in our giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus became poor on our behalf by leaving heaven to come to this earth as a human and to die a criminal's death on the cross for our sins. He has been raised in victory, and those of us who put our faith in him become rich because we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as we learn from Ephesians chapter 1. But also we are spiritually rich because we get Jesus. If we have Christ, then we are infinitely wealthy. We have all that we ultimately need. Therefore, his example of being gracious and generous by going to the cross for us helps us to be gracious and generous in our support of others who are in need. We can give sacrificially because we know that God is with us to provide for all of our needs. But also because Jesus rose from the dead and we can have treasures in heaven through faith in him, we can view money and we can view possessions differently. Money and the things that money can buy for us do not bring life or meaning or happiness or fulfillment. Those things ultimately only come from Jesus. And since we are united to Jesus through faith, we are free, ultimately, to be generous to others who are in need. And Paul will sell, uh, show us that we are also free to support those who are in full-time ministry, doing the work of the Lord. We see this in verses 10 and 11. Paul says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." So Paul says that the Corinthians, they are to welcome Timothy and show hospitality to him, providing for his needs while he is there, and then to support him and to provide for him when he leaves from there and returns to Paul. Because, Paul says, he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. The Corinthian church, they had obviously benefited from Paul's gospel ministry. And Paul is saying, hey, Timothy is doing the same work. And so ultimately, since the resurrection is real and true and the gospel is real and true, it is a good thing to partner with those who are in full-time gospel ministry and to support them, however we might be able to do that. Because ultimately, the resurrection changes how we view money and it compels us to support others in need, whether it's the poor, those who are in need, or even those in full-time gospel ministry. So in looking at uh, your own stewardship of your finances, of your resources— does your financial giving to support Redeemer, the poor, those in need, and even others in full-time ministry, does those things reflect that you believe that the resurrection is true? Because his resurrection and our faith in him mean that we view money and possessions differently. We don't need to be like the rich fool in Luke 12 whose crops did well and he just built bigger barns to store all of his goods and he decided, I'm just going to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Because ultimately, this attitude reflects those who don't believe in the resurrection. For as Paul said in chapter 15, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's how we should live if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. But since Jesus died and rose from the dead, we don't live as if this life is all that there is, just storing up wealth and treasures on this earth for ourselves. But as we have benefited from the grace of Jesus, we extend that same grace to others by giving generously, cheerfully, and sacrificially. For, as uh, scholar Craig Keener said in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Jesus' followers should live like people matter more than possessions. And something, Redeemer, I want to encourage you with is that even though the last 18 months with COVID and everything has been hard, our church has not struggled financially. 
In fact, many of you have gone above and beyond even your giving to the church, but also donated to our Benevolence Fund to help those in Stillwater who are in need during this time, given to support the resettling of these Afghan refugees that we're going to be welcoming soon. And honestly, it's been amazing to see your generosity and to be encouraged by all the ways that we have helped people in this city in the last year and a half in honestly really significant ways. So Redeemer, you are abounding in this grace of giving and generosity. And my encouragement would be to abound in it more and more. Reflect on your life, reflect on your stewardship and your giving and prayerfully consider if you can give more to Redeemer, to Benevolence Fund, to support resettling these Afghan refugees that we are welcoming into Stillwater. And some of you can't and that is okay. And some of you probably should. And some of you, as I said before, you might be in need right now, and that is okay too. Please come let us know. We want to use whatever finances and resources that God has given to us to bless and love and care for and serve you, to build up the body of Christ and to help provide for one another. And this is all because we have received abundantly from Jesus. We are wealthy in Christ. So out of that wealth, we can be generous to others in need reflecting Jesus' example and ultimately recognizing that Jesus himself, he will provide for our needs. And so moving on in our passage, we also see that the resurrection causes us to plan our lives differently. Verses 5 through 9. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want, you to, I do not want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul, he's detailing here his upcoming travel plans, which honestly, it can easily feel like, for us, just a boring Facebook post that we would just quickly scroll past because we're not even that interested. But if we look closer, we see the planning of a man who has devoted his entire life to living in light of the resurrection. Paul, he had seen the risen Christ, and he said in Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so Paul, his plans to go through Macedonia, to stay in Corinth for the winter, to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, even in the face of opposition, was all prayerful and strategic planning on the part of someone whose heart was gripped by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, by the resurrection, whose life was completely devoted to him. And we see that Paul's planning on where to go in his missionary journeys was because of Jesus. His desire to stay in a city was because of Jesus. And ultimately, he's placing all of these plans in the Lord's hands, saying, if the Lord permits, his, his planning where to go, when to stay, when to leave, was all up to Jesus. And Paul knew that and he trusted him. As James tells us in James 4, 13 through 15, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. So when planning our own lives, where to live, what jobs to take, what college to go to, what to do after college, decisions to make in ministry, obviously we should pray and ask the Lord for wisdom. We should also ask the counsel and advice of, of brothers and sisters in Christ, trusted family and friends to help us to make these plans. Because planning, being strategic with our lives is, is a good thing. It shows wisdom. It shows being a, a good steward of our lives and all that God has given to us. 
but we should ultimately trust the Lord with the decision and with our lives. Sometimes, I think we, many of us have probably experienced this, sometimes the decision seems very clear. The Lord is leading us to do this. And obviously in those instances, we should obey the Lord. But other times, even after a lot of prayer, seeking counsel from others, we're still just unsure or what to do. And I believe at that point, we have the freedom to make a decision between whatever the options are, trusting the Lord with that decision and trusting the Lord that in that decision, if he chooses to redirect us to a different way, that he will make that clear. And he is good and faithful and he will do that in those instances. But the main point is that because Jesus is alive and he is the Lord of our lives, we look to him and we trust him with all of our life decisions. Because above all else, we want to know, honor, worship, and serve him with our lives and with our plans. And for me, I've seen that in my own life, actually in my move here to Stillwater. I moved here in October 2015 to help Redeemer. Um, I had met Brian a couple of times at that point. I didn't know anyone in town. I didn't even have a job. There's, I don't have connections to Redeemer or to OSU. I, I usually joke that there's really no reason that I should be here. And my first year after I moved here was actually really hard. I had uh, four different jobs, all very unglamorous jobs. You can ask me about those if you're interested. Uh, During that year, I was unemployed for two to three months. I struggled a lot. I had a lot of questions about whether or not I should actually be here. Should I I stay? Are these things evidence that, that I should actually leave, that the Lord is telling me to leave? And I had close family and some friends say, hey, maybe that is evidence that the Lord is saying, hey, you should probably leave. And I prayed about these things, but I just didn't think that the Lord wanted me to go. I was experiencing these trials. I was experiencing hardships, but ultimately I had confidence, like the Lord, he wanted me here. And six years later, I I can say, yes, the Lord wanted me here this entire time. I've experienced trials. I've experienced suffering since moving to Stillwater, but suffering in this life, whether it's circumstantially, if you're in ministry, whether it's opposition or persecution in ministry, like Paul is talking about, Suffering is not always evidence that something is going wrong and that God is trying to get us to leave. I came here in my life trusting Jesus, and I've stayed trusting Jesus, and it's honestly been really, really hard at times, and it would have been really easy to leave. But the Lord, he's proven faithful to me time and time again. I personally have grown the most in my life as a disciple in the last six years, being here at Redeemer. I've met some of my closest friends here in Stillwater, at Redeemer. I've been given, honestly, a lot of great opportunities to serve this church and and to serve now for the last year as a pastor. And I met my wife here in Stillwater. And so for all of my hardships in being here and any desires to leave in the past six years, trusting the Lord with my life and the big plans of my life has proven ultimately to be a good decision. And ultimately, this is because God is good and loving and trustworthy and faithful, not because I am some shiny example, honestly, of anything. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then our lives are not our own. Our will and desires for what college to go to, what city to live in, what job to take, whether or not to marry, when and where to do ministry, all of these things are in God's hands. But the good news is that God is loving, gracious, gentle, and kind. He genuinely wants what is best for us. And the kicker is that he genuinely knows what is best for us. We only think that we know what is best for us. And so as we submit our lives and our plans to him, he's going to take us places that we hadn't expected and honestly places that we may even dislike. But we are led and we are upheld by the righteous right hand of our Lord who loved us, who gave his life for us.
All we are called to do is to trust him and to be his faithful followers while we're here on this earth. This will bring a host of experiences, some good, some joyful, uh, and some really hard things. But ultimately, we know that Jesus is with us. And letting Jesus guide our, our lives, our planning, it's not easy. It's difficult. Uh, in my time here at Stillwater, I've talked to a lot of people, too many people to count on, on things that they were wrestling with. Should I go? Should I move and, and go to this school? Should I take this job opportunity? Should I stay for, for this opportunity here? Or should I even stay for Redeemer? Um, and some of you here have stayed because of this church, and as one of your pastors, you honestly have no idea how encouraging that is, and honestly how reflective that is of the fact that submitting our lives to Jesus changes how we live our life, the decisions that we make, the plans that we make, because ultimately we are trying to know and honor him in everything. And with any life experience that those things bring, whatever, whether it's difficult, uh, a difficult decision, whether it's, it brings trials or hardships, joys, blessings, or wide open doors for ministry, as Paul is talking about here. All these things are worth it because Christ is worth it. The risen Lord Jesus loves you and is delighted to lead you in the way that you should go. And he is good and he is faithful and you can trust him. And so next in our passage, we see that the resurrection redefines our view of family. Starting in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. We're going to skip verses 13 and 14 and come back to them in the next point. So carrying on in verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So enlisting these various people in these different churches, Paul is not trying to name drop or bore the Corinthians by talking about people that they don't know. Ultimately, he's trying to build upon the themes of love and unity that he has been arguing for this entire time, all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, by helping them to see that the family of God goes beyond just the church there in Corinth. In fact, the family of God extends beyond any ethnic, socioeconomic, or geographic boundaries, the boundaries that we usually tend to put up and to emphasize. Because ultimately, our God-given differences and distinctions remain in this lifetime, but we are united, and all these things are brought up under the headship of Jesus. And so looking at some of the things that Paul mentions, he mentions Apollos. Apollos is not just a key figure in the church, but Paul says he is our brother. He is family. So are the other brothers that are laboring for the sake of the gospel in Christ's church, Paul says. Paul encourages Apollos to visit the Corinthians but he did not want to at that time. And it's possible because Apollos was learning about how the church in Corinth was divided. And as we learned at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, they were pledging allegiance to different leaders saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas. They were divided along these lines and because of these leaders. And Apollos, just like Paul, he didn't want their work for the Lord to cause division in the church, but unity. So, rather than encourage this division by visiting them at this time, it seems like Paulus was going to wait so that the fruit of love and unity among the Corinthian Christians could be further built up and it could grow. 
And verse 15, Paul addresses the Corinthians as brothers, which is ultimately saying brothers and sisters. Every person in the Corinthian church is part of God's family, along with Paul and Apollos. Paul mentions the household of Stephanus, of which Fortunatus, or excuse me, Fortunatus and Achaicus, and these are weird names that are hard to pronounce, they were probably a part of Stephanus' household. And Stephanus was most likely a Gentile Christian who was probably wealthy. Whatever family were part of his household, it says that they served the saints in the family of God well, which ultimately they were probably caring really well for the poor and the needy. Paul says that all the churches of Asia send greetings, showing the unity of the different churches in the different regions of the world. Aquila, who was Jewish, and his wife Prissa, or other places in the New Testament, Priscilla, and the church that met in their house sent warm, heartfelt greetings in the Lord. And we know from Acts 18 that uh, Aquila and Priscilla, they met Apollos in Ephesus and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And all of them were a great help to the church, even the Corinthian church. And when Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned throughout the New Testament, most of the time Priscilla is mentioned first, often indicating that she was probably decently well-known in society and was probably a really strong leader in the early church. Paul says all the brothers and sisters in Ephesus where Paul is writing from also sent greetings to the Corinthian church. And then Paul commands everyone to greet one another with a holy kiss, which might sound strange to us, but was perfectly normal and appropriate in that culture. And ultimately was a greeting that expressed peace and reconciliation among members of the family of God, the church. So in our context, think about just the big hug that you give to a beloved family member when you see them at Christmas. So in all of this, all these churches that he names, all these people that he names, Paul mentions Jews, Gentiles, men, women, the wealthy, strong leaders in the church, in churches in other, region, other regions, Corinth in Achaia, Ephesus in Asia, and the churches in Galatia. And they are a family, Paul is saying, through Christ. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are unified in Christ, and they should, should pursue unity in Christ. They've received perfect love from the Lord, and they are to love one another as Christ has loved them. Because Jesus died for those of us who placed faith in him, and he was raised from the dead in victory. We are united to him and to one another as family, God's family. And these family ties run deeper than even our blood relatives. Therefore, we are to love one another and be unified in Christ. So in thinking about the family of God, what this means for us in our context is that the family of God, the church, is not American. It is not Western. Christianity, the church, is not white. It is not only for the wealthy or the social elites. Christianity is a global, diverse family from every people, nation, tribe, and language. From the beginning, the Church of Christ was always multicultural, multi-ethnic, and socioeconomically diverse. It was then, and it still is today. In her book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin shares some statistics about global Christianity. By 2050, sub-Saharan Africa will be home to 40% of the world's self-identifying Christians. Experts believe China could have more Christians than the U.S. by 2030, and that it could be a majority Christian country by 2050 and that most of the world's Christians are neither white nor Western. Gina Zerlo, she's co-director at the Center for the Study of Global Christianity and says that 67% of global Christians live in Asia, Africa, Latin America, or Oceania. And she says that a typical Christian around the globe today is a non-white woman living in the global South 
with lower than average levels of societal safety and proper health care. And what Paul is telling us about the family of God is that this typical Christian woman is our sister in Christ. And that, in fact, we have more in common with her than we do with our neighbor, our coworker, or our friend here in America who is not a Christian. And that's because through faith in Christ, we are family. And that commonality of being family in Christ means far more than sharing likes or hobbies or interests with someone who doesn't know Jesus, even someone of our own ethnicity or even our blood relative. As Eric Mason says, we should feel more at home with people in the Christian family than our own ethnicity. In other words, the best part of our family should be those who have the same eternal blood type, not just those who have the same physical blood type. So Redeemer, what this means is that we are family. Even if we don't watch the same Netflix shows, even if we don't have the same interests in sports, I don't, I don't know what happened at the game yesterday. I live two blocks from it, didn't know anything except that it was loud. Even if we have different ethnic backgrounds, if we fall into different tax brackets, if we are in Christ, then we are united as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family forever. We are family with brothers and sisters who name the name of Jesus all around the globe. And this is because Jesus rose from the dead and united us as family, those who trust in him. So my prayer is that this reality would be reflected in our lives, in our relationships, this familial love and unity among the church of Christ. And so finally, we see that the resurrection means our lives will reflect our love for the Lord and our love for each other. So going back now to verses 13 and 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So here in these two verses, in between talking about travel plans and then commending different people to the Corinthian Christians, Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church with some short commands that ultimately are kind of summarizing the whole point of the book of 1 Corinthians. He says to be watchful. Ultimately, this means to be on guard. The Corinthians, they should be careful and on guard about the negative influence of Roman and Corinthian culture that is leading them away from the practical daily outworkings of the gospel of Jesus. Culture and their sinful natures have the tendency sometimes to pull us away from Jesus and can cause us to live and have unbiblical moral values and beliefs, to treat others less than they deserve as image bearers and brothers and sisters in Christ, can cause us to adopt bad theology, fall into sexual immorality, be selfish, be greedy, and worship idols rather than worship Christ. These are all things that Paul addresses throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. So he's saying to them that they should be on guard against these things that could drag them away from Jesus and from living their lives as faithful followers of Jesus that they should live. He says they are to stand firm in the faith against anything that might cause them to adopt beliefs and values that are contrary to what we see in God's word and to live in a way that is inconsistent with following Jesus. And ultimately, this is using military language and brings to mind standing firm in battle instead of running away. So they should stand firm in the face of opposition, standing firm for the faith of Jesus. He continues on and says, act like men, be strong. From all the things that I read, a better translation would be, be courageous, be strong. Uh, the ESV and other English translations say to act like men because the Greek word there is from the Greek root word for man. 
and possibly because at this time, bravery in culture may have been, um, or bravery in, in this culture may have been more stereotypically associated with a man. But of course, that does not mean that women cannot be brave or courageous. I mean, my goodness, Tyler's story last week about Magdalene of Nagasaki just um, exhibited so much courage and bravery. And ultimately, it's probably emphasizing more the mature, the mature courage of an adult as opposed to a child. And in the Old Testament, when this language is used, it's, it's always translated, be strong and be courageous. So I think that that is a better translation there. But ultimately, Paul, he's writing to the entire Corinthian church, men and women, encouraging them to be strong, to be courageous for every believer there to stay faithful to the true gospel of Jesus Christ to live courageously as a follower of Christ, even in the face of opposition, without giving in or succumbing to fear or to losing hope. And then finally, Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. And love is to be the defining marker and characteristic of every Christian. That's why Paul devoted all of chapter 13 to love. Our love for the Lord, the gospel of truth, and others is to inform everything that we do. Because we love Jesus, we are to stand firm and hold fast to the true gospel that he has delivered to us. We are not to add, take away, or twist it in any way. We are to not let sinful desires or the influence of our culture cause us to believe things that the Bible does not teach or to live in ways that would dishonor the name of Jesus. We are to not let cultural morality, politics, individualism, or consumerism inform our lives more than following Christ. Because we love others, we are to help them and support them. We are to meet their needs, as we talked about. We are to treat them as image bearers of God with honor and dignity and respect. And we are to be courageous as we seek to love others. And then getting down now to verse 21, Paul, he ends the book of 1 Corinthians saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so it's interesting there. Paul calls a curse on anyone who does not have love for the Lord Jesus, ultimately because he has emphasized throughout the book that because Jesus rose from the dead and the Corinthians are saved through faith in in him, that Jesus is now Lord of their lives. They are to submit every area of their lives to him and follow him. But sinful desires within, sinful temptations without, was causing the Corinthians to reduce Christ's lordship in their life and to give that lordship to other things. So Paul here, he is invoking a curse to help them see how important and significant it is to trust Jesus as Lord of our lives and to love him as Lord of our lives. Continually growing and submitting to Jesus as Lord is ultimately the lifelong process of sanctification. But God loves us and is absolutely committed to us growing as disciples who love Jesus in everything. And so it is in this light that Paul calls for the Lord Jesus to come and to make all the wrongs right of this fallen world as we come and rule and reign with the Lord Jesus. And Paul ends by reminding the Corinthians of his deep love for them because they are family in Christ. As he loves them like this, they are to love one another as family. This love is very practical intangible, showing care and concern for others, meeting needs, seeking the good of others. For as Jesus said, others will know that we are his followers by our love for one another. And this intense love and devotion to Jesus and the love for others that flows from receiving his love points back ultimately to the reality of the resurrection. 
He died on the cross for our sins. He bore our guilt and shame. He was raised from the dead in victory over sin and death. And because he was raised through faith in him, we are forgiven and we are saved. We are reconciled to him and we are reconciled to each other as family. We trust and obey him out of love for him, knowing that he loves and cares for us. And we love each other because, as I said, we are now family through faith in Christ. And one day, all of us and everyone from the rest of the family of God, from every people, nation, tribe, and language will gather around the throne of Jesus, who died, was raised, and is alive forevermore to worship him for all eternity and to dwell with him face to face. And so since this is our greatest hope and our greatest joy as the family of God, as the people of God, we too can say with Paul, our Lord, come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Thank you for all the incredible gospel hope, the incredible gospel truth and encouragement, and for all of the incredibly encouraging ways that the gospel applies to our daily lives, even seemingly small, practical, or mundane things. Thank you, Lord, for chapter 16, for the encouragement and example of Paul, of what it means and what it looks like to live lives in light of the resurrection. Because Jesus, since you died and you came back to life and you ascended and are seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, this changes everything. It changes how we make plans in our lives. It changes how we think about money and finances and resources and stewardship. It changes how we view family. It changes everything, Lord. So help us, Lord. Show us by your Holy Spirit areas in our lives that we can grow so that when people look at how we choose to live, that they will see, yes, you can tell that they are a follower of Jesus who believes that Jesus actually raised back to life from the dead and is alive now. God, may we here at Redeemer Church be united in love and unity because we are family in Christ. And may all of this serve to glorify the name of Jesus at Redeemer in Stillwater and to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, we do look to you and we do pray, our Lord, come soon. So, Lord, we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.